Thank you, Lee, and hope you're in 1 Corinthians 4. We're continuing our study here, and Paul has, uh, is addressing factions, and, and really in this passage, we'll be in here for the next uh, couple of weeks. There's just too much there. To, we're only going to get through uh, uh, really verse uh, 7 today, and we'll look at 8 through the, the remainder, 21 next week. But Paul is, has come full circle. He, he's warned them uh, he's, he's dealing with factions and how factions can come from division and factions can come from, from worshiping one person over the other and factions can come from our loyalties to people and, and they, they can come in all kinds of ways. And Paul has already told them how not to think of them, the wrong way to think of them, thinking too much of them as, as their leaders. We saw that in chapter 3. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They're mere servants. They're just servants. And today, in this passage, he, he deals with the right way to think of them. The right way to think of your leaders. The right way to think of your pastors. The right way to, to think of men and women who are, who are leading in specific areas of a church. And this goes way beyond pastors. It's talking about leaders. And the application is, is very ap- applicable to you and to me individually as well. There, there is a balance in, for all of us of thinking too much of ourselves and that has to be balanced with thinking too little of ourselves on the hand on the one hand you can think too much of me and begin to worship me as your leader but on the other hand you can think too little of me and that's the balance Paul is trying to deal with here and 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 the challenge for all of us is we oftentimes not only begin to think wrongly about individuals, but oftentimes it often it, it flows into comparison. Comparison of individuals. And, and I don't think we set out to do it, but, but when you're talking about two people or two things in the same category, when, when you compare them, it naturally leads into criticism. I, I think we would agree. When, when you're talking about two things in the same category and you're comparing them, it naturally turns into criticizing one on behalf of the other. And I'll give you an example. And, and obviously, you know, I, I'm biased. Obviously, where I graduated, we're, we're a house divided in here for our teams. And I'm not going there. But when you're, comparing, when you're comparing Florida and Florida State, you can't talk about the one without eventually criticizing the other. They're two in the same category. You don't like Florida and Florida State. Uh, just as Lee came up here to give his announcements, he's obviously a, a Cardinals fan. Well, David whispered up to me and said, Hey, remind him that Boston won the World Series. They're from Boston. And Lee mentioned the Cardinals last week and they won. He didn't mention this week that Boston Red Sox won the whole tournament. You know, you don't, you, you, if, you like, if you like Tom Brady, you don't like Peyton Manning. And you're com- when you're comparing the two, it's going to naturally turn into criticizing the one that you're not in favor of. And that's what Paul is dealing with here. You know, last week, Daniel, he's a Miami fan. He was popping off about how great Miami was and all this, this, this. He said not a word to me this morning. He didn't say a word. It was like the game never happened. And, and the point is this, that's okay and that's fun, and, and it's fun to do that. FSU has been terrible for about 12 seasons. We're finally good again. You know, it, it's okay to do that when you're talking about sports teams. 
It's okay to do that when you're talking about players. But it's not okay to do that when you're talking about your pastors and your leaders. It's fun to do that with sports teams. But that stuff needs to stay out of the church. Because what happens is, that same attitude, we take that same attitude towards our sports teams... And, I, and I, wish, I wish oftentimes, even in my own life, but some of us were as passionate about the things regarding this Bible as we were about our sports teams and these players. I wish we were as quick to give a defense for the gospel as we are to why this player is better than this player, or this team is better than this player or team. And, and the problem is that same spirit creeps into the church. And now we start comparing leaders in the church. We start comparing people in the church. And in Corinth, in Corinth, they were exalting some leaders over other leaders. And eventually, it led to the criticism of certain leaders. In this case, they were criticizing Paul. He was being criticized. And, and intentionally or unintentionally, it will happen. Oh, I like this pastor over this pastor. You start talking about it. Eventually, you're criticizing the one you don't like. It's just natural. And they have become against Peter and Paul here. And Paul is challenging them. That's what he's doing. He's challenging them in their criticism of himself. And, and his primary purpose, hear me, it's not to defend himself. His primary purpose goes way beyond himself, way beyond his apostleship. I mean, he addresses Apollos here. Apollos is not even an apostle. He, he, he's going way beyond that. But this is about how should we approach church leadership rightly. How do we approach church leadership rightly? All leaders. Paul had matured them. He had ministered to them. He had grown, the Lord had used them to grow them. He had done great things. And Apollos had done the same. And eventually, unfortunately, they begin to criticize one on behalf of the other. And they're criticizing one another. And, and Paul is dealing with the division that came about over that. And he's answering the question, how do we view our leaders today? How do we view church leaders today? How do we relate to them? What do we expect of them? How do we treat them? That's what Paul is dealing with. You know, and in chapter 9, he, we're going to get there eventually. Some of these cha chapters are somewhat uncomfortable for me to preach because there he's arguing it's right for a, a pastor to receive money. That seems... I'm going to preach that one. Everybody, of course you're going to preach that chapter, Chris. We're going to spend eight weeks there. No. But, I mean, it's, that's uncomfortable to preach. I'll be the first to tell you, Idlewild is very generous to its pastors. But Paul is going to defend that. He's going to defend it. And, and to accomplish this, how do we... He's saying, again, how do we relate to leaders? How do we treat our leaders? And to accomplish this, Paul is going to make sure you understand that church leaders are simply servants. At the core, they are servants. I am a servant and, and again, that word, when we look at it here in a few moments, it's not a flattering word that Paul uses. It's not an elite word. I'm a servant. God has given me a responsibility to shepherd the flock that is here at Odessa, and my primary responsibility is just to be faithful. Primary responsibility is to be faithful to what God has called me to do. I'm not to be likable. Paul's going to deal with that. Pastors, leaders, church, we're not here to be liked. We're not here primarily to be cool. I'm not here to try to be relevant. I'm not trying to here to be hip. I'm not trying to be funny. 
My, the, what God is going to judge me on is, was I faithful? Was I faithful? And, and Paul is dealing with a culture. He's saying the role of a pastor, the role of a shepherd, the role of a church leader goes way beyond his ability to speak well. Again, Corinth, we talked about that. They loved their, their people, their leaders, to be very flowery in their speech, to know all the big words. I, check me off, a big X on that. I'm struggling with whether it's regardless or irregardless. You know, we're, we talked about last week about a y'all theology. I love the word y'all. Probably not the best English. He, he's saying it, it's not about whether you can speak well. It's about whether you're faithful. The, the role of a pastor is not whether you look a certain way or act a certain way or dress a certain way. It's about whether you're faithful. And he is saying it is a pastor's, a pastor's whole life, a church leader's whole life is to be committed to the flock. We're called to be faithful. I'm going to be measured. I, the Lord is going to measure me against that, that one measuring stick. Was Chris Basham faithful? Was he faithful? And so Paul is going to look here. He's looking here at the whole life. He's questioning. He's answering questions about the whole life of the pastor and what it looks like. And he, he, says, he says some things we're going to look at. Are you an example to the flock? My life should be an example to you. Not that I will be perfect, but my life ought to be followable. I don't even know if that's a word. You ought to be able to follow me. And when you follow me, I hope that you end up at the cross. You know, I, I want us to be learning God's Word. I want us to be studying God's Word. I want us to be memorizing God's Word. I try each week to memorize verses because I want to lead in that. I don't want to ask you to do anything I'm not doing. I should be followable. I should be an example. How, how does a pastor model the Christian life? I ought to model it in a, in a way that leads people to Christ and not to myself. I don't want you to follow me in, in the truest sense. I want you to follow the Lord and you just happen to be behind me because we're both following the Lord. So what should you expect of me and demand of me? That's what Paul is dealing with here. You ought to reasonably be able to make some demands of me. And if I'm not willing to fulfill these demands, go find somebody else to lead you that will meet these demands and follow these demands. That, that's what Paul is saying. What is right to expect? But, but not only that, I don't want you to think you're sitting there and think you're off the hook and make a checklist for me. All these are applicable to you as individuals as well. You ought to be followable. Other Christians who have walked maybe with the Lord fewer years than you, who are, in more, who are less mature than you, your life ought to be a, a, an example for Christians to be able to follow. This isn't where you just say, hey, come let me show you Chris Basham and you follow him. No, it's you follow me as I follow my leaders, as my leaders follow Christ. All of our lives in here ought to be examples. It, this goes way beyond just me. Every single one of us in here, individually, we are all believer priests. We're leaders. We're to be examples. We all are to be found faithful. Y'all don't just get to mess around and say, hey, we, we pay Chris to be good, so I'm going to do whatever. That's not the way it is. I, hear some people, I heard it one time, they say, I'm paid to be good, y'all are good for nothing. You know, I'm pay, I mean, that's not the way it is. We're all to be followed. And so let's, what, I'm, what I want us to hear today is let's do this together. As you challenge me and as you watch me and as you encourage me to be faithful, I want y'all to be faithful. 
I want us all to be faithful. So let's do this together. Let's grow into Christ's likeness together. So, so, so breaking down this text, a couple of, couple of things in verses 1 through 7 that I want us to, want us to pull out today and, and park on. The first thing, and you see it on your handout, we must see church leaders as servants who have been given authority. How do we view church leaders rightly? How do we, how do we not look at them too... How do we not shortchange them, but how do we look at them rightly? See them as servants who have been given authority. Look, look at verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, in this case, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Trustworthy. First and foremost, church leaders belong to God. I belong to God. That is, that He is my primary, principal person that I am to represent. It's God. I am a servant of Christ. This goes for me, but it also goes for you. My primary obligation is to, is to serve, is to bring glory, is to bring honor to Christ. But that's yours as well. Yours as well. The word used here for servant, it literally means under rower. In Paul's day, oftentimes ships would have three levels of rowers. What Paul talks about is the bottom, bottom level in the belly of the boat rower that nobody would have even known that person existed. All the junk, all the water, all the waste, everything from those top two decks, guess where it ended up? On the third level rower. That's the word Paul uses here for servants. An under rower. Bottom rung. Down there in the dark, nobody even really knows. They don't even know what you're doing. They don't even know you're there. All the while, guess what they're doing? Rowing faithfully. Just rowing faithfully. That, that's our call. We saw it in, in chapter 3, verse 7. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Paul simply says, hey, I'm doing what I was called to do. I'm doing what I was supposed to do. To do what I'm responsible for doing. Look over in 1 Corinthians 9, 16. I, I referenced that one, but and we'll get there eventually. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. What was Paul's job? To preach the gospel. What was an under rower's job? To row. What is your job? To preach the gospel. To row. Regardless if anybody notices, regardless if anybody applauds you, regardless of any of that, the Lord will applaud you for your faithfulness. We're servants. We're servants. And, and Paul says here, that's our responsibility. It's not optional. I, he says, I didn't preach the gospel when I felt like it. I didn't preach the gospel when it was convenient. I didn't preach the gospel when they liked me. He says, I was under compulsion to do one thing, to preach the gospel under compulsion. It didn't mean that he was, did it begrudgingly. It meant he knew why he existed. Why he existed? To preach the gospel. To share the gospel. But not only that, he says, and stewards, your servants, but he says, and stewards of the mysteries of God. This is a cool tension, a cool balance that Paul does here because he uses the, the, the picture of, of steward to show responsibility. A steward was a servant who had been entrusted with the entire household of his master. 
Masters would, would find a very faithful, a very reliable, a very dependable, a very trustworthy individual, and they would make them the steward of their entire estate, all of their possessions. They would, they would find a steward, and that person would take care of it. Even in Galatians 3, you see the word, and it's really a pedagogos, a, a very high-ranking official would find someone faithful, and they would basically give their child to that person from infancy through schooling, and they were responsible for training up that child so that one day that child could take over their father's responsibilities. A steward. How do you think that father who found somebody faithful and entrusted his entire Everything he had to that person. How do you think he treated that guy? Or that, well, I bet. Loved him. Cared for him. Huge responsibility. Huge. He was known by his master. He was loved by his master. He was well taken care of by his master. And at the same time, that's a picture of us. At the same time that we're under rowers. At the same time that we're the lowest of the low. That we're disregarded by culture, that we're, we're insignificant in the, in the grand scheme of things, that, that we simply do our job at the same time we're nobodies, Paul says you're absolutely somebodies. At the same time you're, we're under rowers, we're also stewards. Highly loved, highly regarded, highly esteemed, highly valued. And that's the tension, that's the tension there on your handouts, that's the tension that we all face. Between being the lowest in regards to responsibility and being highly esteemed in regards to the love that our master has for us and the responsibility that he's given us. Somebody who has been entrusted with something very, very, very valuable. We have been entrusted. We, have, we are stewards of something very, very valuable. We are somebody special. It's all by grace. It's all by grace, but... We're special. And what is it? We're stewards. He says we are stewards of the mysteries of God. That is what we steward. The mysteries of God. You say, what are the mysteries of God? It's the most precious thing in all history. It's the Word of God. It's the Gospel. That's our number one job, our number one focus, our number one care is to preserve this Word. Is to preserve the Gospel, is to make much of the Gospel. For Paul in his day, it would have referred mainly to the Old Testament. They wouldn't have the privilege of having all 66 books right here in front of us. It's interesting, uh, some, some individuals, and I think Pam actually went to Israel um, with the group, and uh, Ken Smith was telling us, he was talking to a, an individual over there, a historian, and they said, in biblical days, they, they had the Bible in scrolls. They didn't just have all 66 books and these nicely bound with commentaries and all that. They would open up a scroll and the Israel, Israelite, they would literally, the Jews, would touch the opening of that scroll was so precious. He said at the hearing, at the reading of God's word, they would start dancing and yelling and screaming with excitement to hear God's word. And they literally would touch their hands to their mouth, kiss their hands. They would kiss the scroll, touch the scroll, and then they'd put it back to their lips because to them it was sweeter than honey. That's what they were saying about the word of God. They knew it was the most precious thing in all the world. They knew it was what gave them life. It's what gave them truth. It's what gave them guidance. And we steward that today. We steward that. You can look at John 17 with the high priestly prayer. He says, I've committed to you. You commit to them. We're the them. 
Why did Jesus come? To give the word of God to the apostles so they would write the word of God down for us. We steward that today. We steward this word today. Truth. Authority. That's our job, to be stewards. And the measure, he says, in this case, verse 2, moreover, it is required. What do you want me to do, God? How am I to steward? He says, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. That word also means faithful. The fill in the blank there is faithful, that we would be faithful. My job is to be faithful to this word. It's not, to be, it's not primarily to be the most charismatic. It's not to be the most successful. It's not to be the most popular. Again, Paul, in their opinion, Paul was a nobody. In, the, in Corinth, Paul would have not been chosen as the most likely to succeed compared to their speakers. And that was what they measured by human standards. Paul says, hey, that's not my job. My job is to be faithful. And by the way, your job is to be faithful. It's to be faithful. All, all these other opinions about ourselves, about others, can be way off. What mattered was what God thought about Paul and what God thought about the job he was doing. And Paul says, hey, guess what? Our job is to be faithful. Look, look with me at 1 Peter 5, verses 2 through 4, here up on the screen. But proving to be, listen to this, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. But prove to be faithful. Prove to be examples. Be followable. Be worthy of being followed. Your, your job is to be examples. And he goes on to say the chief shepherd when he appears. We're little shepherds under him. We are to shepherd the flock. To watch after the flock. To care for the flock. To, to come around one another and say, hey, hey, how you doing? I haven't seen you in a while. You doing all right? To love one another, to care for one another, under the authority given to us by Jesus Christ. We are to care for His flock. I'm to care for you, and I'm to care, try to care for each one of you, but we're also to care for one another. When I leave here today, I, I visited the Tharps in the hospital. When I leave here today, I'm going to go visit the days. I enjoy doing that, but guess what? We all ought to be doing that. And that's why we're approaching it as a church-wide with the meals and things like that. Not just one class or one little group. We are all caring for each other. We ought to know what's going on with each other. And, and Paul says clearly, it, it's ultimately why? To be faithful. Because ultimately what our reward is coming from is from our Lord Jesus Christ. And His opinion, God's opinion of us is what matters most. It's not your opinion of me. It's not what the world thinks of me. What matters most to me is what God thinks of Chris. Now hear me. I have to remind myself of that. Because I'm a people pleaser. And I live and die on what people think about me. And I have to continually go back to the Word of God and say what matters most is what the Lord thinks of me. And, and our assessment, look what Paul says, but to me it is very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Paul is saying our assessment of ourselves and others matters very little when held up to God's assessment of ourselves. Does God count you as faithful? Paul wasn't arrogant here. He's not saying he's beyond reproach. He's not saying he's beyond being looked at. What he's saying is ultimately what matters is what God thinks of me, not what you think about me. Because guess what? I don't always judge rightly. I don't always judge without bias. I rarely have all the facts. 
And Paul is saying, guess what? The Lord has all those. He judges rightly. He judges without bias. And he has all the facts. And ultimately, it's his judgment is what's going to matter most. And he says he will render a judgment. And we need to be very, too, very, quick, very careful about balancing between judging too quickly and not judging at all. That's the tension. I read a quote by C.S. Lewis. He said, there's going to be, there's going to be uh, three surprises in heaven. Number one, who's there? That's going to surprise you. Secondly, who's not there? Thirdly, that you're there. He says that's the three surprises. He, he's probably right. There, there are some moments and even some days where I think, Lord, why in the world would you, and why would you save me? Why would you send your son to die for me? And the humbling reality that we must all face is this. The Lord may find approval where we only found disapproval. And the Lord may find disapproval where on an earthly scale we found approval. And he's saying, be careful, be careful. You, you, may, you may come to the wrong conclusions here. Be careful about your judging. Judge, but be careful. And many people come to this passage and they think, oh, don't judge. Don't judge. Guess what? We're about to go into chapters 5 and 6 and Paul says we're to make some strong judgments. We are to judge. It's just the basis and the, and the scale in which we're judging by. We are to judge. But we're to judge rightly and we're to understand that ultimately it's the Lord who judges. And what Paul is talking about here is the kind of judgments that were specifically against him and his ministry. They were judging him and his ministry according to worldly standards, according to standards that they had made up themselves. They had their own checklist. And they're saying, okay, Paul, you don't measure up here, 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 and here. Okay, therefore, we're disregarding you. And all the time he's saying, look, it's the Lord's scale that matters. And, and ultimately, what we have to keep in mind and humbly keep in mind is, what our, is that our judgments don't fully matter. Even our judgment about ourselves doesn't fully matter. Again, Paul says, I'm a conscience of nothing against myself, but that's not what acquits me. Why? Because sin is deceptive. We don't always know our own hearts. I may think I'm right when I'm dead wrong, and I may think I'm wrong and I'm dead right. I may think I'm clean in an area and there's sin. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can understand them? I, I'm capable of deceiving myself that I'm clean where I'm not clean. That I'm doing right when I'm doing wrong. We're all capable of that. And the thing that haunts me is that at any time in my life, I am not aware of the totality of my sin. At any one moment in my life, I am not aware of the totality of my sin. I guarantee you I'm more sinful than I ever think I am. But the Lord knows, and, and He says, I've separated it from the east and the west. And the Holy Spirit sometimes will bring up things to me that I don't, even, I don't even know I said. I don't even know I did. I didn't even know I had a motive there, and the Holy Spirit will convict me about it. I had no clue. Because I, I don't equip myself. I mean, I think I have anything going on that's wrong, but by that I'm not acquitted. The Lord does that. And we are stewards. He says, be faithful. And the application of this, the take-home for this, 
of being found faithful and being stewards is this. I, I live in the balance every day, the trap really, of seeking to please you more than I please the Lord. That's the trap. Of preaching in a way that pleases you and tickles your ears versus pleases the Lord. To live in a way that pleases you or that you would applause me versus the Lord. That's the challenge. Of, of saying what you want to hear. Of watering down hard truths. Of picking books that will be easy to preach. Of when we come to hard truths of saying, you know what, I, I'm going to dial that back a little bit. and I'm going to No, no, no. Of not wanting to offend you and instead I offend the Lord. That's the balance. That's the, that's the tension that I face. But that's the tension you face. You face that tension. And, and Paul is saying, ultimately, we have to be loyal to Christ alone. We need to seek God's approval first and foremost and alone. And here's the, here's the thing. When I do that, I guarantee you, you all to be better for it. And when each of us individually seek to please the Lord the most, those around us will be all the better for it. Because you can give your kids all the Halloween candy they want, and they'll be happy for a little while, and guess what? Later on, their stomachs are going to hurt. And they're going to be sick. And they're going to be malnourished. Why? Because you just gave them what they wanted. And, and, and our job is to not give people what they want, but to give them what they need. And, and, and when I say that, it's not that we are unbounded in our freedom. This passage screams accountability. I am accountable to you under the authority of the Lord, and you're accountable to me under the authority of the Lord. Primarily, I am accountable to God, but I'm also accountable to you as the sheep. And I, and, I, and I want you I want you to hold me accountable. I want you to expect me to know this word well. I want you to expect me to shepherd you well. And I want to hear from you when I'm not. Because I am accountable. Help me be faithful. But help one another be faithful. And when somebody comes along us, side of us, and helps us, receive it in love. Receive it in love. Our first instinct is to be prideful and, and woe. And to receive it in love, but do it in love as well. Love one another en enough to come alongside. Because this passage, not only that, it, it teaches us the, the tension between pleasing God and pleasing others, but it also teaches us the tension between not judging anything at all and then over here judging every little minuscule detail of everybody's life. That's the other tension. On one side, you don't judge anything. And on the other side, you're nitpicking people's lives for something to look for to judge. That's the other tension. You know, Matthew 7, 1, judge or you'll be judged. Don't judge or you'll be judged. That's sort of the mantra today. It's an excuse for doing whatever you want. But they don't finish reading down to 7, 5 where it says, take the speck out of your, your, the plank out of your own eye so that you can take the speck out of the other person's eye. He's not saying don't judge. He's saying you make sure you're clean in the area that you're judging. You know, I thought about this last night. I, I don't know if you watched the game, but Jameis Winston, FSU's quarterback, the man can't see. He, he's, he's like this the whole thing. Get the brother some contacts. Get something. The St. Luke's has got to get him some LASIK surgery and put a little advertising. He can't see. And, but see, that's the point. When we have sin in our own life, we're, we're trying to judge other people and, get, and we're like this. Because sin's blinded us in our own lives. He says, get the, get the plank, the bigger object, 
out of your life so then you can go get the speck, the smaller object, out of another person's life. And we all face that balance, the balance of, of, of judging everything and judging nothing. But not only that, not only that, it, it makes for a great Disney movie. I think Disney did it. But we live in a world that says, let your conscience be your guide. Let your conscience be your guide. And Paul, what he says right here is, you can't trust your conscience, your conscience to be your guide all the time. You can't trust yourself all the time. We live in a culture that says, hey, if you think you're right, then you're right. That's dead wrong. You may think you're right and you're dead wrong. We live in a culture that says, what does it mean to me? I don't care what it means to you. I want to know what it means to the Lord. I want to know what God's Word says it means. Because if we just all go do what we want to do, well, that's chaos. That's chaos. And, and Paul is saying, I don't know my own heart well enough to venture anywhere away from this Word. I have to be tethered to this Word. Why? Because I don't know my own heart well enough to trust my own heart all the time. That's why I need my heart to be transplanted by the gospel. I need my mind to be renewed by the gospel. I need my life to be uh, uh, transformed by the gospel. All areas, every way of thinking, take it back to the gospel. Sanctified, that's the word I was talking about. I need my life to be sanctified, but I knew it was an S. I couldn't, pick it. I couldn't pull it out. We, we have to rely upon the revealed word of God, not experiences, not emotions, all those things are arguable. It's like arguing whether Peyton Manning is better than Tom Brady. And if you want to know the answer to that, ask Chris Hockley. He's already shaking his head. But, but you can argue that forever. There's no, there's no end. I, I can't argue your feelings. I can't argue your emotions. I can argue the Word of God. And we take everything back to the Word of God. It's clear. And that's, those are the things, the applications for us. Don't think too highly of ourselves, but don't think too little. Don't fail to judge it all and don't judge every detail. And don't think you're wise enough to live very far from the word of this God. Do not wonder. Be like the elephant who's been tethered to that stake, which is the word of God. And do not wonder very far from this word. Because we can be deceived. We have to lean on the objective word of God alone. Everything else is subjected to this word. Everything. Because God has already judged this word to be true. So be found faithful. Be a servant, be a steward, but be faithful. That's the first thing Paul says. Secondly, he says, we must see church leaders as examples to be followed, but not worshipped. Examples to be followed, but not worshipped. Now these things, verse 6, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn, look, not to exceed what is written, so that none of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Look, the challenge for all of us is a tendency to become arrogant. Even in the context of chapter 4 and the verse 2 verses of chapter 5, look over in verse 18 of chapter 4. Now some have become arrogant. Look down in chapter 5 verse 2. You have become arrogant. You can go over to James 4 and it's talking about today or tomorrow, I'm going to go here and there, I'm going to do this and that. And, I'm going to, and James says, woe to you who say that. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. 
He says, some of you have become arrogant, boasting and presuming upon the Lord. Arrogant. Arrogant. That's all of our tendency. I, I would say one of the biggest occupational hazards for me as a pastor is to become arrogant. It's to become arrogant. It, it's, it's, it's nice to be called and asked what the Bible means. It's nice to be needed. It's nice for you to come each week and listen to me just talk. The tendency to become arrogant. The tendency is to put myself in the place of Christ. The tendency is to think you're following me when you ought to be following Christ. And I'm to be followed, but I'm not to be worshipped. There's nothing about me that you want to worship other than what Christ has done and is doing in me. And the Corinthians are puffed up. Comparison, again, comparison always leads to criticism. That's what Paul is saying. Just like we talked about early with regards to football teams or players or, or these other worldly things, comparison always leads to criticism. And the Corinthians are being puffed up about things that they had absolutely nothing to do with, and Paul is calling them on the carpet. You know, Daniel and I can give each other a hard time and, you know, smack talk or whatever. This, this would be Paul's version of smack talk right here in verses 6 and 7. He's calling them out. And he's going to ask them three questions that clearly have the answer of no. And what Paul does here is a model for us to follow. He takes them back to the gospel. Every single turn, he takes them back to the gospel. He takes them back to scripture. And he says, okay, you have this attitude. How does that line up with scripture? Okay, you have this attitude about this. How does that line up with scripture? Okay, you have your attitude about this third thing. Well, let's go one more time back to scripture and let's see. How does it line up? And Paul is saying, do, do not take pride in yourself over what God has done for you. If you're going to boast, 1 Corinthians 1.31, what do you say? If we're going to boast, boast in what? The Lord. You see the unity of this whole book. It's, all, it's unified. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Boast in what He has done. Boast in what He is doing. Boast in what He will do. The reality, all, of our, all of our lives, if, we would, if, if I would lead you in that example, but also if we would do that in ourselves, if we would take everything back to the gospel. And, and, and the other thing is, you ever notice how you get a couple of guys, and I'm guilty of this too, you get a couple of guys talking about their sports team or favorite players or, or girls, I don't know what y'all might debate, I don't know, maybe y'all, maybe... On November 19th, when y'all come up here for sewing, you'll have a heated argument like we would about football teams or something. I don't know. But you ever notice how it always leads to fighting? It always leads to arguing. It always leads to your voice going up a couple of notches. It always leads to talking over one another. That's exactly, that's exactly what Paul is dealing with here. When we start getting divided... Over church leaders, when we start worshiping the wrong things, when we start following the wrong people, we fight, we argue, we divide. When, I put our, when we put ourselves in the place of Christ, when we make ourselves and our own agenda bigger than the gospel, when we make our own happiness bigger than the promotion of the gospel, when we replace Christ with us, division. Mark it down, division. And that's the tendency for all of us. 
to put ourselves or to put somebody else on a pedestal that doesn't belong on the pedestal. Christ alone belongs on the pedestal. And he's saying, don't put one against another. Don't pit one against another. Those other things are just opinions. Go back to the truth. And, and, And Satan wants us to get off track and to argue and to fight and to fuss and to focus on the wrong things. To argue over people to argue over the miraculous and where it came from, to argue over subjective things, to, to rather than simply going back to the Word and saying, I don't know, but this is what the Word of God says. I don't know about that, but this is what the Word of God says. If it fits, keep it. If it doesn't, throw it away. Throw it away. Because this, we can agree here. We can agree there are some fences put around our lives here. And Paul says that. He says, for your sakes, verse 6, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. You know what that literally says? Live according to the rules. Live according to the rules. Stay stay in the rules. And and he's saying, you don't exceed what is written. Don't, Don't go this far. Don't go over here too far and think less of yourselves than you should and exceed what is written over there because you're precious. You're stewards. Hey, but don't go over there and think too much of yourself because you know what? You're a servant. You're a servant. And I think that's why Paul says that. On one hand, our tendency is to think too little of ourselves. And he says, you're a steward. You've been entrusted with the mysteries of God. You are a loved, precious, valuable uh, uh, person of your master. Over here, but then over here, so we get all puffed up. And he says, oh, but you're, you're just a servant. You're an under rower. There's a balance. There's a balance. And that's why we go back to the cross, because guess what? The cross teaches humility. There's only one posture at the foot of the cross, and it's on your face. Because of what God has done, it teaches humility. You're not not bragging at the foot of the cross. You're, You're not fighting about individuals at the foot of the cross. I'm not arguing about my rights and, and things about that with, with Karen and, and fighting over who's the greater and fighting over who should do this and this at the cross. Guess what? You know what? I'm humbled at the cross. I'm serving at the cross. I'm giving up myself at the foot of the cross because that's what Jesus did. And when we leave, when we leave the Scriptures behind, when we leave the cross behind, when we focus on anything else but Jesus Christ and Him crucified... There's going to be division, we're going to be puffed up, we're going to fight, and we're going to pursue things that aren't worth pursuing. And that's what Paul is saying. When we make up our own standards, when we make up our own rules, when we, when we make our own set of guidelines, there's fighting. We had that happen when we were playing co-ed softball. The, there's a rule, hey, you can only score 10 runs or one more if you're down by 11, you can score 11 runs to tie it up. Well, they had gone through the batting order, and the guy's just keeping them batting. I'm saying, hold on, the rules say this. And the umpire says, well, I didn't know it said that. Okay? And again, you're talking about somebody who's very, very competitive. It didn't sit well with me. But, but don't exceed what's written. When, when, when we individually do that in our own lives, guess what it does? The same thing that the umpire did to me. It incites, it, it draws stuff out in us. We fight. We argue. And, and humility, humility is what we need. Again, 
the word arrogance all over these passages. We need humility. Because humility characterizes God's servant, Jesus Christ. You go to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. You go to Philippians 2, 2. Have this mindset, which was also in Christ, that though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bond servant. He says, don't think more than yourself than you ought. Christ didn't. He knew his place. Go to John 3.30. John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist had hundreds of people following him, a huge following. When Jesus Christ stepped on the scene, guess what? John the Baptist stepped aside and said, there he is. That's the one I've been here to tell you about. Here he is. Humility. Humility. And when we leave the cross, the total opposite effects. We become arrogant. We become prideful. When we don't focus on the cross, we get, we're, we're, the opposite effect happens in a church. And humility is the basis of God's operation. It is the basis. And you can look throughout Scripture, all throughout Scripture, there's a common theme. The men and the women that God used the most, had the great, they, they had a sense of unworthiness about them. Oftentimes, God used the very person that was the least obvious choice. Jesse parades all of his children in front of Samuel. Guess what Samuel says? Hey, isn't there one more? That's not the obvious choice. Saul was the obvious choice before that. Not the one God chose. Moses struggled with it. Abraham struggled with it. Jacob struggled with it. John the Baptist. Paul. All over the scriptures. Sense of unworthiness. And yet God did great things through them. Why? Because they wanted to make much of the Lord, not themselves. And humility, humility is the channel of fruitfulness in our lives. You want to be fruitful? Be humble. Humility. It's humility. Look, look with me at 2 Corinthians, what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. I'll come up there on the screen. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. What, what is this doing? Don't exalt yourself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, and He has said to me, listen to what God's answer is, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, this was Paul's response, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Humility. Humility. James 4, 6 says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. He doesn't just overlook the proud. He says he opposes the proud. And what Paul is saying, he asks him three things in verse 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Imagine this, a bunch of under rowers in the belly of a ship, everything falling on your head, in the dark, nobody even knows who you are, and you're down there arguing over who's the greatest. That's the picture. I mean, it'd be like, 
the third string team over here who never sees the light of day is the practice squad. They're arguing whether they're the greatest or not. We don't even know who you are. And Paul's saying, what, why are you arguing? Servants don't need to argue. They need to serve. They don't need to sit around arguing over who's better than the other. They need to be gracious for the fact that they get to serve who they serve and serve. A steward, he didn't do anything to warrant that. He was simply chosen by his master. It would make no sense for him to go bragging about being the steward of all he has because guess what? Everything he stewards isn't his. It's not his. So why would he brag as if it were? That's what Paul is saying here. Sin causes us to overestimate ourselves and underestimate others. We, we, we turn God's grace into status symbols that divide us instead of simply having an attitude of gratitude. We begin to become arrogant. We begin to think, oh, I've arrived. No, God is blessed for whatever reason. And, and Paul asks three questions here in their hand, on your handout. Essentially, he says the first question. He says, what do you have the, for who regards you as superior? In our vernacular, it would be, who in the world do you think you are? If I was writing this, that's what I would ask. Who in the world do you think you are? And the issue is conceit. It's conceit. There's no biblical grounds. Paul's saying there are no biblical grounds to exalt one person over the other. Since the difference between you and me is only attributable to God. The reason I'm different from you is all God. The reason you're different from me, all God. The reason you're good at some things that I'm not, God. The reason I may be good at some things you're not, God. Why would you brag about that? Makes no sense. Second question, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? What he's saying there is, what do you have that's not of grace? The issue here is gratefulness. It's gratefulness. They're conceited and they're ungrateful. We deserve nothing, and yet God loves in spite of that. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and through 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. In everything. You go to Ephesians 5, 19, Paul writes, For everything give thanks. i got some things in my life that I'm having a hard time being grateful for. And yet it's grace. God walks me through it. And teaches me less of Chris. Less of Chris's arrogance, less of Chris's pride, less of other stuff that's down. In, I told Karen last night, I said, I, I hate watching these games because all it does is tell, show me all the junk that's down in my heart. When I'm watching games and everybody's a moron and it's like, can't they do their job? And Karen's like looking at me like, what are you doing? Kids, go to bed. I don't want to see your father this way. It's not that bad, but I'm learning. I'm learning. Marriage and kids will do that to you. God puts a couple kids to sit on the couch for you way past their bedtime, so you're sitting on your hands and, oh, i got to quiet. God's good that way. But in the same way, I put myself in the game, and I get a whole lot more out of those games. I'm not playing. I didn't practice. I'm just a fan. They don't even know I'm watching. And that's the way it is. He's saying, what are you doing? What do you have that you didn't receive? You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. They, lastly, he says, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? He's saying then the logical question is, given the first two are the answers they are, how do you boast? 
And the, the issue there is a proper understanding and response. Why do we boast? Not only that, why are we selfish with that which we've been given? I, I'll tell you, I, I was sitting there talking to Bradley the other day. He and Sarah were fighting. Of course, it was over a humongous, like a what a roll of wrapping paper would have come on. It's a piece of cardboard. and They're fighting like this is a piece of gold. And, and I pulled him aside and I said, Bradley, did you work for that? No, sir. Did you earn that? No, sir. Did you buy that? No, I said, how'd you get that? Uh... Mr. Ronnie gave it to me at church. I said, so why would you be selfish with it? Why would you be stingy with it? Why would you fight over it? And you know what the Holy Spirit said to me? Those are good questions. Ask yourself, Chris. <laughs> Clear as day. It wasn't audible. I'm not going there like it was. I'm just saying. The Holy Spirit inside of me said, Chris, that's what I've been asking you for a while too. Did you buy that? And I said, okay, Bradley, go play. At that point, it's like, okay, go play, go play, go play. But it's the same thing. Why are we fighting about stuff we had nothing to do with? Why do we argue about things that we had nothing to do with? Why do we act like we're better than other people when we, I had no decision to be born in Tallahassee, Florida to Terry and Norma Basham. I could have been born anywhere else in the world and God would have been no less grateful, I mean gracious, no less good, no less sovereign, no less merciful, no less anything and here my tendency is to look at other people in the country like man they need to get their stuff together you didn't choose that chris and grace here grace leads to gratitude pride leads to boasting and errands when i'm when i'm gracious when i'm living with a spirit of gratitude i understand grace but when i'm fighting and when i'm bickering when I'm arguing and we're doing the same, guess what we know? We got pride. There's pride. There's immaturity and pride. And that's exactly what Paul said in chapter 3. So what's the application? I am your leader by the grace of God. That is all His doing. It is not my own. I am to be followed as an example. I am not to be worshipped. And when we start worshipping our pastors... All Satan has to do is cause that pastor to stumble or move him somewhere else and that church falls apart. Why? Because the people were worshiping the wrong person. There's a tendency for you to worship me. I'm not worthy of being worshipped. Not only that, be careful that we do not exceed what is written. Do not go beyond what is written. Seek to live a life that is within the confines of Scripture and just trust God. Look, you know, some of you, when you had little children, you taught them to write by, you put little dotted lines. Karen would put these letters and words, especially with their name, and they would be dotted lines, and they was laminated. And Sarah and Bradley would take a marker, and they would trace their name. They would learn to trace. What do we teach them? Don't go beyond the bounds. Then we'd wipe it off, and we'd do it again. Wipe it off, do it again. Eventually, guess what? They don't need the dots anymore. And that's the way it is with this Word of God. When we start to get a hold of God's heart and understand God's heart and know God's heart and sense God's heart, we start exhibiting a little bit more freedom in how we live because we know the heart of our master. We're careful not to go beyond what is written. It's why I don't want us to shy away from deep theological truths. We need to go in the deep end of the pool and learn how to swim, be able to defend our faith. 
But we have to see grace and humility. We have to see the grace and humility of God and keep it in the forefront of our lives. It starts with your kids. It starts with your spouse. Every single one of us in here. Grace, humility. And we will accomplish nothing of eternal value without that. I, 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 want you, I, I, I want to lead by example. I, each week there are index cards, and I say this just for accountability. Feel free to ask me, because I want you to do it too. Every week there's an index card on my dashboard that has a verse on it that I'm trying to remember, that I'm trying to learn. I don't do it as I'm driving all the time. I'm sitting at a light. You're sitting in traffic. There's a verse sitting right in front of me. It helps you remember, otherwise I'm not going to do it. Last week was Psalm 29.2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. What that means is, Chris, you get a glimpse of the beauty of God, you'll worship Him. You see God for who He is, you'll worship Him. This week is Daniel 2.20. Blessed be the name of the Lord forever and ever. For of Him is power and wisdom. Just one a week. 52 a year. And you'd be amazed at how that'll encourage you. One's not enough. It became two. Hey, I got the first one in two or three days. All of a sudden, I'm like, hey, I'm going to do another one. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm doing that to encourage you. Because my tendency is not to do that. My tendency is to think, I got this. I know this. I don't. Not, not enough that God is worthy of. And I don't want to go beyond what's written. And I don't want us to go beyond what's written. So I, I pray that we would be a body that decides to serve the Lord wholeheartedly and recklessly. Wholeheartedly and recklessly. That we would make much of grace and less about ourselves.